Hello, everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. So, as I'm sure you can tell by the title of this episode, you have a pretty good idea what this is going to be about. Um, obviously, because this is all anybody can talk about right now online, if you are extremely online, of course, we are going to be talking about the letter. Um, the open letter that is published in Harper's, and I believe it's going to be published in a couple of other different places, that has just caused this insane amount of controversy online. And I'm just, I'm kind of blown away by it, but that's not where I want to start this story. I want to back up and start this story at the controversy that happened before the Harper's letter that everybody was talking about online. And that is what ended up happening with the CEO of Away Luggage. Now, I'm going to go ahead and just like I'm going to do for the Harper letter, I'm going to read to you exactly what she said, because kind of the theme of this episode is going to be gaslighting and the amount of gaslighting that has been going on over the past couple of weeks about stuff that we all know, we all know to be true. But certain people want to insist is not real or doesn't exist has been insane. And I will go ahead and warn you on this one. Not that I ever edit for language, but this one is probably going to be particularly ranty and expletive filled. So do not listen to this around your children. Don't ever listen to any of my stuff around your children, but definitely don't listen to this one. So anyway, Stephanie Correy, who was the CEO of Away Luggage and then uh, late last year, I believe, because I think all this went down in January-ish of this year, um, there was a piece released, and it's one of these these pieces that people write now that, you know, it's about women CEOs or, or girl bosses or whatever, and kind of doing sort of a hit piece, basically, where you, you go and you're like, oh my God, look at this woman. She's a CEO, but she does CEO stuff. And sometimes she's not very nice. And sometimes she says mean things. And and her employees, they just don't like it sometimes. And, and it's just all, it's all very, very stupid, very salacious, very just dumb. Honestly, it's clickbait. It's what it is, is it's fucking clickbait. So anyway, I wanted to give you that backstory so you could understand kind of where Correa is coming from when she's making these statements. And the other thing that I want to emphasize before I read her statement is that this is not something that just came unprompted. She was doing, it looks like like an IG story, ask me anything. And so this was prompted by somebody asking her a question. So she's answering somebody's question. She's not just taking it upon herself to go on some rant against the media. Like this is the question she was asked and this was her answer. So here we go. The question was, in your opinion, why are women being targeted and who is doing the targeting? Her answer. A lot to unpack with this one. Here it goes. In yesteryear, if someone was interested in reading the news, they opened a paper newspaper and read whatever was in it that day. They didn't pick what news to read based on what was the most juicy or entertaining drama of the day, just what was printed there. Advertisers paid for ad space based on a consistent circulation. Journalists wrote about what was happening. Enter the internet and digital media. Now readers can pick which news to read. A lot of the digital media traffic is coming straight from social media. So the more juicy and shareable the article, the more views it gets. The more views it gets, the more the advertisers pay. With digital, every view is countable and every source of traffic is trackable. There are financial targets to hit and the competition for those eyeballs is fierce. 
So now the incentive isn't to report what's happening, it's to write things that will be shared by people on social media. And several of these digital-only outlets have nearly non-existent editorial standards, especially the clickbaity ones, you know who you are. Side note, I could write a whole separate essay about how defamation lawsuits should be made easier to pursue now that misrepresentation is the business model of some outlets. Thankfully, there are a small number of people who are not deterred by these lawsuits. Those are the selfless contributors to society who we all should be thanking for the reason that there's a tiny shred of accountability. Okay, so this explains why unbalanced misrepresentative takedowns, they drive lots of social media sharing because they're juicy fodder for cancel culture, but why are women being targeted specifically? Because readers find their takedowns even juicier. Society expects women to be motherly and nurturing, being tough and ambitious is a positive quality in a man, but icky in a woman. Remember when Hillary was judged harder for her email server than her opponent was for everything? By women too, and often especially, And for the question of who is doing the targeting, these business models exist in a system where more social shares equals more clicks equals more money. And thanks to society's inherent bias, people will share click more if the target is a woman. The reporters who do these female founder hit pieces for these outlets are almost always millennial women, occasionally co-written or edited by millennial men too. My best guess on why that is older reporters were trained during the paper newspaper days of high journalistic standards and aren't willing to partake in this, while these younger reporters are willing to forego their personal ethics to advance their careers and profiles. That's my take on why women are being targeted and who is doing the targeting. Would love to hear other people's perspective too. Important postscript. I believe the overwhelming majority of journalists are dedicated and wonderful truth seekers who do an incredible public service for us all by investigating and reporting on important matters that we otherwise would never know. I know there are a few who are using the media platform that they have access to to further their careers by knowingly misrepresenting female founders for clicks and their own profit slash fame. Okay, first off, zero lies detected. Zero. What she said is not anything that anybody else hasn't said about clickbait culture and about cancel culture for years now. And quite frankly, she nails it. Yes, clickbait culture is real. Yes, a lot of these pieces are written because they do draw eyeballs. And yes, women on women shit is, I mean, this, we've been talking about this for decades and I'll take it one step further, even though she kind of mentioned it in her, her piece. Every time you see one woman attacking another woman, There's some dumbass dude in the background cheering it on. Every damn time there is some dude back there. It's always that shit. Every time. But Taylor Lorenz screenshotted all this and tweeted about it. And this was her tweet. Steph Curry, the disgraced former CEO of Away Luggage Company, is ranting on IG stories about the media. Her posts are incoherent and it's disappointing to see a woman who ran a luggage brand prepped perpetuate falsehoods like this about an industry she clearly has zero understanding of. All right. This started a whole ass controversy that I won't bore you with going into the details on, but basically it it started to highlight, first off, is, is Lorenz trying to say that clickbait culture ain't real? Because it is. It absolutely fucking is. Do not say that it's not, especially when your beat is the internet and social media. You know this for a fact. That's your job. And in fact, Lorenz's job specifically is writing and promoting this kind of shit. So first of all, no, don't, don't say something ain't real. 
And don't say that somebody doesn't understand an industry just because they haven't worked in it. No. This whole thing spawned this whole internet fight over basically what amounts to there's a brewing war between media and tech firms. And a lot of this comes down to a lot of long simmering stuff. And I think it kind of all came to a head with the Slate Star Codex story. Um, New York Times was going to write a story about the blog Slate Star Codex, and they were going to completely dox the man who wrote for it. He already had his first and middle name out there. He had specifically not had his last name out there because he is a practicing, I think, a psychologist. But obviously, for certain reasons, he didn't want his whole name out there because that would impact his day job. And also just, I mean... If somebody, to me, if somebody asks not to be put out there like that, I don't think that's an insane ask. So what he ended up doing was basically to kill the story, he killed the blog on the basis of, well, if the blog no longer exists, then there's no story, then I'm not going to get doxxed. And a lot of people got really pissed off at that, rightfully so, because the New York Times tried to stand on this principle of, oh, well, this is what we do. We don't let people like use half names or use pseudonyms or remain anonymous. And then a lot of people rolled up to point out that that's not the standard that they use all the time. Specifically speaking, when the New York Times did their piece about Chapo Trap House, they let Virgil, Texas be Virgil, Texas. And if you were not aware Virgil, Texas is not Virgil, Texas's government name. Like that's his pseudonym, but they allowed him to keep that. And they referred to him as that. So there was a bit of a double standard going on there, but this whole thing kind of devolved into a really stupid slap fight between like the VC tech people and Taylor Lorenz. And this whole thing was also on the back of Taylor, just not having a very good week because before this, the story around her was that she basically did a story about George and Kellyanne Conway's 15-year-old daughter making TikTok videos and come to find out through a tweet from George Conway that she never asked the parents whether they would be okay with her doing a story on their minor daughter. So a lot of shadiness going on, but this was kind of like the first instance of gaslighting going on over the past weekish or so. And it's just, it, it struck me as so weird. Cause like I said, I mean, I, I would co-sign everything Corey said, like, that's true. It's absolutely fucking true. And I don't, I don't understand how you deny reality. Like we've been talking about this. I've been talking about this and I'm hardly the only person who has been talking about this for years about the perverse media incentives that exist now, not only for traditional media, but also social media. That everything is driven by clickbait. It's driven by likes. It's driven by retweets. That's how that's how platforms make money now. And I'm not unsympathetic to the fact that they have to pay their bills. Like I, I've discussed this before. I won't go into it again. But just the sheer fact that somebody in media whose whole beat is the internet wants to sit here and say that clickbait culture isn't real. I'm just like, no. And so basically she got kind of savaged for that where everybody was pointing out like, no, what she said was not incoherent at all. It's actually quite coherent and quite true. And even, even if you were somebody who felt differently, like it's her opinion. Like, I mean, you can debate the opinion. There's not anything to debate here, but 
Like it was just it was just a weird attack. And of course, so Corey is, I guess, no longer CEO of Away. Um, it's kind of left up in the air as to when she would be stepping down. It was put as sometime this year. Um, when she did this AMA, she was out on maternity leave and her employees got mad that this was the thing that she was talking about now in the midst of protests and Black Lives Matter and everything else. Basically, they're like, why are you talking about the media right now when you just be talking about this other stuff? It's like, because she was asked a fucking question. I mean, like I said, she didn't do it out of the clear blue yonder. She was asked a question. She answered the question. And I I wonder if Lorenz didn't do this, if she didn't like surface all this and put it all out there, if any of that would have happened. Like, would Corey still have her job? Like, it's just, I, oh my God. Anyway, so... That's that was the first kind of thing that set me off this past week. Then, 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 then we get to the letter. Before I get into discussing the letter specifically, I think a big problem with, well, if I'm taking this in a good faith sort of way, a lot of the problems that people are having with the letter and kind of misinterpreting or misconstruing what it is that it's trying to do and say is that people are not understanding what is meant when we say cancel culture. I thought we were all on board with understanding what cancel culture was. Apparently we're not. So I'm going to go ahead and take this moment to give what I think is a fairly good definition of what cancel culture is so that going forward, you can understand what I mean and what I think most people mean when they use this term. All right. There's kind of two parts to cancel culture. The first one being when you decide that, well, and I use like the royal you, I'm not saying you specifically because I hope none of you would ever engage in this sort of activity. But when you decide that you want to take somebody down for whatever reason it is that you want to do it, um, and, and you know this, you've seen the thing where people go back through people's Twitter feeds or their Facebook feeds or their LinkedIn's or just wherever they can find, they go spelunking for data to use against a person. And no matter how old the data happens to be, you dredge it all up and you, you resurface it, which is the stupidest, stupidest euphemism. It, it, like it, like it just magically floated to the surface. No, somebody went and looked for it and then you drag it all up and you're like, here, Look at what this person said 10 years ago. Oh my God, we have to get rid of them because they said a thing fucking forever ago. Like the, this is the dumbest one so far. The CEO of Fiat, the, the car company, just had to step down over an essay that he wrote in 1987 questioning whether women should be allowed in active duty combat. First off, 1980 fucking seven. It is 2020, people. Second of all, that wasn't exactly a controversial opinion in 1987. In fact, women weren't allowed in 
active duty combat roles until I think like 2005. So come on now. But I mean, there's, there's plenty, like legion of examples of people going through people's old social media stuff and dredging up stuff to get them fired or to get their projects canceled or basically to materially harm someone. And that's, that's kind of the second part that I want to emphasize is when somebody is canceling someone, this isn't critiquing them or criticizing them or wanting to engage in debate or anything like that. It's you're deliberately trying to deprive somebody of something material. That's the key part. You're going after somebody's job. You're going after somebody who they're related to's job. You're, you're trying to hurt them in that way. The second kind of aspect of cancel culture is when you take a statement that somebody makes that is on its face just rather benign to maybe mildly controversial and you spin it up to the point where it becomes this huge massive online thing that ends up having real life ramifications for that person. Again, it materially hurts them. So I've seen a lot ever since the letter came out of people trying to define down cancel culture as just, oh, it's just criticism. Like, no, it's not just criticism. If it was just criticism, nobody would have a problem with it. It's that you're going after people's livelihoods. That's a fucking problem. That is something that does need to be called out. And it's starting to happen more and more, not just to people on Twitter or on social media or in academia or authors or whatever, this is starting to happen to normal real life people who don't have the means of fighting back the way a lot of us who have platforms do. And so that, that explanation of cancel culture is uh, that kind of leads into what I think that the letter is talking about and trying to describe to people. So let me go ahead and read you the letter because it is a short letter. The reason I want to read it verbatim though is because we've kind of gotten to the point in this cycle where I think people are commenting on it without having ever bothered to read it, which kids always read the source material before commenting because this is just, I mean, it's, I, I think the letter's fine. I mean, I, as a statement of principles, I have no problem with it. I, I don't, I don't expect one short letter to like bring about world peace or even particularly solve the problem of cancel culture. The point is for the people who have signed onto it, the signatories to say, we agree with this statement. And that's been the second part of this is the signatories and how people have just lost their goddamn minds. People have lost their goddamn minds over this. This is so basic. It's such a basic letter. So let me read it to you just so you can have an idea of what people have lost their shit over. So here we go. A letter on justice and open debate. Our cultural institutions are facing a moment of trial. Powerful protests for racial and social justice are leading to overdue demands for police reform, along with wider calls for greater equality and inclusion across our society not least in higher education, journalism, philanthropy, and the arts. But this needed reckoning has also intensified a new set of moral attitudes and political commitments that tend to weaken our norms of open debate and toleration of differences in favor of ideological conformity. As we applaud the first development, 
we also raise our voices against the second. The forces of illiberalism are gaining strength throughout the world and have a powerful ally in Donald Trump, who represents a real threat to democracy. But resistance must not be allowed to harden into its own brand of dogma or coercion, which right-wing demagogues are already exploiting. The democratic inclusion we want can be achieved only if we speak out against the intolerant climate that is set in on all sides. The free exchange of information and, and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society, is daily becoming more constricted. While we have come to expect this on the radical right, censoriousness is also spreading more widely in our culture. An intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a binding moral certainty. We uphold the value of robust and even caustic counter-speech from all corners. But it's now all too common to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. More troubling still, institutional leaders, in a spirit of panic damage control, are delivering hasty and disproportionate punishments instead of considered reforms. Editors are fired for running controversial pieces. Books are withdrawn for alleged inauthenticity. Journalists are barred from writing from certain topics. Professors are investigated for quoting works of literature in class. A researcher is fired for circulating a peer-reviewed academic study. And the heads of organizations are ousted for what are sometimes just clumsy mistakes. Whatever the arguments around each particular incident, the results have been to steadily narrow the boundaries of what can be said without the threat of reprisal. We are already paying the price in greater risk aversion among writers, artists, and journalists who fear for their livelihoods if they depart from the consensus or even lack sufficient zeal in agreement. This stifling atmosphere will ultimately harm the most vital causes of our time. The restrictions of debate, whether by a repressive government or an intolerant society, invariably hurts those who lack power and makes everyone less capable of democratic participation. The way to defend bad ideas is by exposure, argument, and persuasion, not by silencing or to wish them away. We refuse any false choice between justice and freedom, which cannot exist without each other. As writers, we need a culture that leaves us room for exp experimentation, risk-taking, and even mistakes. We need to preserve the possibility of good-faith disagreements without dire professional consequences. If we won't defend the very thing on which our work depends, we shouldn't expect the public or the state to defend it for us. Again, it's a perfectly fine letter. I wish there would have been more inclusion of left-wing censoriousness, but, I mean, it's, it's a fine letter. I, that's, but that's it. That's, that was the letter. That, that, was, that was the entirety of it. The... <laughs> Somehow, some way, that is controversial. I I don't know. I I'm I'm like I said. I am completely baffled by the response to this. But the second part of what has made this so controversial is the list of signatories, and I'm not going to read all of them because I think there's over a hundred people who have signed on to this. But we're talking a very, very deep bench that kind of goes all the way across the ideological spectrum. I mean, you've got everybody from Noam Chomsky to Salman Rushdie. You've got Deidre McCloskey. You've got Ann Applebaum, Margaret Atwood, John McWhorter, Yasha Monk. I mean, David Brooks is here. Olivia Nuzzi is here. Nick, Nick Christopoulos is here. Like, you could just keep going. Like, Camille Foster's on here. Let's see, who, who else do we have on here? Let's see, David Frum's on here, Jonathan Rausch, Francis Fukunama. Let's see, who else we got? Malcolm Gladwell, J.K. Rowling, which that is the probably the most controversial signatory on this. Um, let's see, who else do we have here? Jonathan Heights on here, Sarah Heidler's on here. 
Jeet here is on here. Like I said, it's all over the map. You got Gloria Steinem and Nadine Strawson, which I never thought in a million years I would see the two of them sign their name to the same document. You've got Coleman Hughes. You got Zephyr Treachout. You got Cynthia Tucker. And probably the second other most controversial signer on this is Matt Iglesias. And that has spawned a whole thing. And let's see who else we got. Barry Weiss, um, Thomas Chatterson Williams, who is actually the person who started this whole concept of this letter and was instrumental in writing it, which is funny because some people have tried to float the idea that this was just a bunch of white dudes and Williams isn't white. He's mixed. So <laughs> not a bunch of white dudes. Let's see. Who else do we have on here? Emily Yaffe, John MacArthur. Yeah, there's just, there's, like I said, there's a ton of people on here. Really deep bench, really just spans the whole ideological divide. Ideally, what you would think that you would want to see in a signatory list of a letter like this. It's not just libertarian types or just liberal types. It's, it's across the ideological divide. So this dropped on, I believe, Tuesday. And I am recording this on Thursday. And so we are now on day three of the letter. And it has just gotten progressively more insane. Like when it, it dropped like around probably nine-ish, ten-ish on Tuesday morning. And so I read it because everybody was tweeting about it. And I'm like, okay, this is fine. It's it's cool. It's whatever. I was rather impressed by the signatory list. I'm like, okay, they, they put a lot of effort into reaching out to people and getting getting signatures. All of Tuesday was like watching some kind of insane mental experiment go down on Twitter because this went wide, obviously, and then people started reacting to it. And I was just like, what the actual fuck is going on here? And like I said, like I expected people to be mad about this because it's a deliberate call out of cancel culture and basically saying, can we all please knock it the hell off, basically? And so, obviously, you, you had the whole cancel culture isn't real, which stop it. Yes, it is. We've been discussing it for years. There are whole ass books written about it. And I kind of take it a certain way when people say that cancel culture isn't real. Because I have a friend that got canceled. Nancy Rommelman is my friend. I, I was there when that shit happened to her. I talked to her about it. We did a whole episode about it. Like, don't tell me something isn't real when it happened to one of my friends. Like, that's insulting. Like, that's just, I, I take that a certain way. Because now you're like, you're trying to tell me something that I know is true, isn't true. And like, okay, so how would, how would you like me to square that with my experience and my friend's experience? And that's not to mention the scores of people who have been through this. Like, are you serious? Are you even? Oh, my God. So, another drops. Everybody kind of jumps on their own particular hobby horse to criticize the letter and the people who have signed it. Um, sadly, <laughs> this became a thing. And I just, I, my God, if this doesn't prove the whole damn point of the letter. A couple of people who signed the letter, once it went public and they realized how many other people signed it and who signed it, because apparently that's a thing. 
now want to rescind their names because, well, oh, I didn't know this person was signing it. And I'm just like, who gives a fuck who signed it? What does that matter? Did you agree with the letter? Did you not agree with the letter? If you agreed with the letter, great. Sign your name to it. Who cares who the hell else signed their name to it? That's not the fucking point. Like, did, did you miss the point? But the whole fact of people being shamed into wanting to rescind their name from the list of signatories proves the whole point of the letter. Thank you, everybody, for participating in the most Pavlovian mental experiment I have ever seen. Like, I just, everybody just, it rang the bell, and then everybody ran to the food dish. Like, I just, oh my god, it was nuts. It was absolutely nuts. And so, you have this evolving thing where it starts with people attacking those who signed the letter and say, oh, oh, you, you want to be associated with this person or that person. And first of all, just because you sign your name to something doesn't mean you're associated with every other person that signed their name to that document. Like, that doesn't even make any sense. That's a stupid fucking argument. Like, it just, it, but that's how, that's how you attack people is you attack by association. So that happened. And then we kind of moved on to somehow or another, this being like an anti-trans thing, which nobody said anything about trans people. Like what? What? And this is this is where the J.K. Rowling thing comes in, because if you're not aware, um, people have been trying to cancel her for God, probably years now for the offense of J.K. Rowling saying publicly several times that there is such a thing as a biological woman, like that woman is a biological thing. And so obviously the trans crowd, the pro trans crowd have been, like I said, it's been going on for years now. This is a stupid back and forth. And that's, that is a corner of social media that even I don't touch because it's too freaking toxic. Like these people are insane. Like these are vicious, vicious attacks. And of course, J.K. Rowling is not getting canceled because she's freaking rich and she's made a lot of people a lot of money. So, yeah, nobody's going to deplatform her. Like, yeah, okay, sure, you're not going to publish the next J.K. Rowling book. Yeah, okay, yeah, we're going to forego millions of dollars because y'all want to have some stupid online fit. That ain't happening, but it keeps being tried. So that's that's that. And also, Jesse Singal and Katie Herzog are also signatories on the letter. And they have both been accused for being transphobes for the the sin of asking, you know, maybe we shouldn't be doing transitions on kids. Maybe that's a bad idea. We don't really have any data on the long-term effects of that. So maybe we should just ease up a little bit on that. Maybe. And so, of course, if you say something like that, then you're transphobic and you'd want trans people to literally die or kill themselves or what the fuck ever. Like, I, it's just, if you ever want to go someplace and see the worst bad faith arguing, go step into that particular debate on Twitter. I I mean, my God, the, the things that have been said about Jesse Sengal that are just absolutely not true, but just keep getting flung out there. It's like, oh, how, how? How does he even, like, I would just be like, you know what? Fuck all y'all. I'm leaving Twitter. But so there's that controversy. And then the other controversy that sprung up around Maddie Glacius being a signer on, on the, the letter. Obviously, this has not entirely gone down very well 
over at Vox with his co-workers. And so, oh, this is just, in a way, I, I mean, I feel bad for Iglesias, which this is, this is how bad this is. I feel bad for Matt Iglesias. You made me feel bad for Matt Iglesias. What the hell, man? But somebody, one of the the people that work at Vox who's trans wrote this letter that was supposed to be internal to Vox saying how she feels like Matt signing onto this had made her feel unsafe and it's a bad workplace and blah, 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 blah. But she also posted it up on Twitter. Now, I don't know if I've ever done this on the pod. I know I've done it on Twitter, but here's the thing. For a lot of people who work in media and are also famous online, the personal brand takes precedent over everything. And I was kind of surprised that this is how this all went down kind of large scale. And maybe I'll talk about that some other time because I really thought that once internet famous people started working for legit outlets that their behaviors would change and actually they haven't, they've gotten worse. So this gets posted out there. Again, this whole internal, because again, also nobody can just handle their shit internally anymore because again, the personal brand takes precedent over everything. So now any internal dispute that you need to have, you got to go let all of Twitter know that you're doing this so that you can get those likes and those clicks and those retweets. It's just like, I, can can you people just handle things in private? Like, would it kill you? But the thing that really brought this to a head was yesterday. And that is when Ezra Klein decided that he was going to roll up and make a tweet. And let me read you the tweet. And then I'll read you Iglesias' response, which he, he afterwards deleted, but not before like everybody and their mom saw it. But on the backdrop of knowing that there is kind of this internal war going on at Vox over whether Iglesias should have signed the letter or not, or what the letter means, or how it should be interpreted, or blah, 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 blah. A lot of debates that sell themselves as being about free speech are actually about power. And there is a lot of power in being able to claim and hold the mantle of free speech defender. Now, actually, let me back up a second because it was a day or two before this. Um, Iglesias had said something on Twitter to the effect of not really tweeting about anything controversial anymore. And a lot of people side eyed it, thinking that maybe he was told not to tweet about anything controversial anymore. So... Klein made that tweet. Swears up and down. That wasn't a subtweet. It was a subtweet. Like, stop it, dude. We all know who you were talking about. And uh, <laughs> these people are such ah, damn vipers, man. Just fucking pit vipers. So he puts that out there. Everybody reads it exactly the way it should be read. And Iglesias responds in the replies. Should I reply to this with a concrete example or stick to my commitment to you? <laughs> All right. I got respect for Iglesias for doing that because you just completely busted out Ezra Klein in his replies and let everybody know that the whole reason you're not talking about something is because you were told not to. And now, now you just made Ezra Klein look like a piece of shit because now that we all know that he got that commitment 
from Iglesias to not say anything, you want to turn around and make like some pissy subtweet about it and thinking that he ain't going to say nothing. I respect Iglesias for standing up for himself and making that tweet. Like, bust him out, dude. But after that, of course, Ezra made a tweet about why I never, I was not talking about my friend Matt Iglesias and I would never try to get him fired over this. But dude left, dude left the subtweet up. Now, here's my thing. If you genuinely did not mean for something to be taken a certain way and a whole bunch of people take it a certain way, including somebody who is your friend, like Klein and Iglesias are friends, like they started Vox. They go way back. If even your friend takes it that way, delete the fucking tweet and apologize. Don't leave the tweet up and then do some kind of pearl clutching. Why? That's not what I meant at all. I would never. Because now you're trying to play both sides of the fence. You want to leave the original tweet up because you want to left up what you said because you were talking to a certain crowd. But you also want to pretend like you didn't just throw your friend under the bus to go pander to that other crowd for the clicks. That's shady. That is some shady shit. That's just, wow. But it's kind of like what's going on at the New York Times where you obviously have this internal war and people willing to throw their colleagues under the bus for clout. And that's just, that was just, woo. That is some shady shit. So, like I said, we're on day three of the discourse on the letter and it's just getting worse and worse. Like somebody tweeted that, wow. You know that Thomas Chatterson Williams guy, he really he really tweets like he, he might have some skeletons in the closet and that's why he's got a problem with cancel culture because he's afraid that he might have, get canceled. I mean, I don't know anything about the dude, but I'm just, just thinking out loud here. And it's like, are you kidding me? Ooh, yeah, it's going to some dark places and, and people are making some very nasty insinuations about why somebody would want to write or to sign on to, again, this very benign letter. Like, it's so basic. That's why I wanted to read it to you. Like, people are getting completely out of pocket over that. So, again, don't try to tell me that this atmosphere doesn't exist when a letter that simple it sets people off, like, their brains explode. And all of a sudden, we have to have these, these insane discussions and arguments and insinuations thrown about. Like, I, I just, Wow. It was, it was nuts. Like, I, I cannot overemphasize just how insane the past couple of days have been on Twitter. But putting that aside, I want to engage in some of the more decent criticisms of the piece, although I don't really agree with any of them. The first one that's kind of coalesced is, oh, look at all these people who don't have to fear being canceled because they're part of the quote-unquote elites. Which, congratulations, that's the point of the fucking letter. The whole point is that these people are speaking up because they have huge platforms. Because they know that they're really not going to face any kind of repercussions other than a bunch of people yelling at them on the internet for this. They're speaking up for everybody, everybody else who does not have that platform. Who does not have the support of a peer network or institutional support, or tens to hundreds of thousands of supporters on the internet. 
We're speaking up for those people. The people who are living normal lives and get sucked into this insane cancel culture and can't do anything about it because they're not they're, they're not public figures. They don't have a platform. They don't have that kind of support behind them. And everybody who made that argument just kind of told on themselves that they are incapable of processing the idea that a group of people or that an individual, because it seems like this was kind of a blind signatory thing. Like I've seen people talk about it and they knew like maybe one or two other people that signed onto it, but the full list wasn't known until it was released. But the idea that you as somebody who has a platform does something that is not solely for yourself. It's for the benefit of somebody else. And of course, Everybody on the list would benefit if we stopped doing cancel culture, as everybody in the world would benefit if we stopped doing cancel culture. The point is, they have the platform to promote this. And people have tried to make like the stupidest argument that this would have been more impactful if it was done by people who weren't in that position. And I'm just like, if just a hundred rando people signed this letter, nobody would talk about it. Like, nobody would care. Because nobody would know about it. Because those hundred rando people don't have a platform to promote it. Like the whole idea was that these people are using their names and their platform to promote something to help somebody else who is not similarly situated. Like why I'm I, I baffled as to why that is a difficult thing for anybody to understand. So that was one. And then we... <laughs> We started sliding into some really interesting excuses for why cancel culture is good, actually. The first one being, it's it's not it's not bad. We're just holding people accountable for what they say. To that, I say, when was the last time you saw somebody get canceled over something that was really even worth talking about, let alone worth losing their job over? When? Point to me. Show me. Show me the last time that cancel culture actually canceled somebody who genuinely fucking deserved it. I mean, what? We got to go back to Harvey Weinstein? I, I, this is not about holding elites accountable. This is, it's not even holding people accountable. It's just destroying their lives over nothing. Like I said, when was the last time any, like, what? Because somebody tweeted out a study that shows that nonviolent protests affect better change politically than violent protests? That dude lost his job over tweeting out something that is demonstrably true. Uh, you may not like it, but it's true. <laughs> I mean, Yasha Monk did a whole story the other day about normal people who got caught up in one of these canceling mobs and lost their job. Like this one guy who worked for an electrical company out in California got goaded into doing like the okay sign, which everyone knows is supposed to be a sign for white supremacy now, which no, it's not. That's the best 4chan troll ever because people believe it. But they took a picture of it and they got this dude fired because he sent it to his employer and made a big deal about it and dude got fired. And then there's, there's other stories like that. There's the, the shore story about the data. Um, 
there was another story about a man who basically just lost his business of 20 years because his daughter made some anti, I think it was anti-Israeli posts, like anti-Semitic posts. But again, that's his 15 year old daughter. Like what? It's just, it's, it's insane. Like normal people are getting sucked up into this shit. And even going back to the example of Nancy, like Nancy is a public person, but what ended up happening to her is because she said some things on her YouTube channel that people didn't like, they basically got her husband's business canceled. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you people? Like, yes, this is real. And yes, it happens to normal people now, increasingly. And that's what the letter is about. I mean, I just, oh my God. Like, I, I, I'm i still baffled how many people cannot just read this letter and interpret it. Like, I don't, why is everyone trying to make it about what it's not? The next one that popped up is, well, you know, if we did something about at-will employment and, and we strengthened, you know, employee protections in the United States, this kind of stuff wouldn't happen. No. You know what the solution is? Stop being a shitty person. Stop canceling people. Don't expect employers to change how they structure their employment relationships with their employees because you're an asshole and can't stop canceling people. Stop canceling people. That's the fucking answer. Not, let's, let's, uh, again, people jumping up onto their particular favorite hobby horses and trying to ride it into the sunset on this one. No, cancel culture is not a reason to change labor relations in the United States. It's a reason for you to stop being an asshole. Like, I just... Oh my lord, these people, I don't, I don't. And the one, the one that really, really irritates me deeply is the criticism that, oh, this is just the elites not wanting to be criticized for what they say online. First off, read the fucking letter. Read it again Read it until you read the part where it specifically says they welcome all forms of debate from any quarter. What the fuck? No, we're not saying don't criticize people. Nobody, nobody that signed that letter, nobody that has ever critiqued cancel culture, none of us, nobody has ever fucking said that this is that nobody wants to be criticized. Nobody said that. That is a complete bullshit straw man argument and it pisses me off because it's the exact opposite of what we're asking for. What we want instead of cult cancel culture is debate. If you want to criticize us, criticize us. If you want to debate us, debate us. Cancel culture is not criticism. It's not debate. It's shutting somebody down because you're too much of a chicken shit to criticize or debate somebody. That's what it is. So don't sit here and say it's because a bunch of people don't want to be held responsible for what they said. Not a damn person on that letter would have any problem being held responsible for anything they said online. If you wanted to step to them, do it. They will take you on. Any of us will. Don't fucking get people fired. Don't try to come at people's jobs. Don't try to come at people's families. Come at the person that you want to come at. And do it. Do Go ahead. Debate somebody. Criticize them. It's not what cancel culture is. And that's why I wanted to define it earlier so that everybody can kind of understand what it is and what it's not. It's, it's not saying that 
that, that nobody wants to be criticized. And, and kind of the second argument that goes along with that is like, oh, cancel culture is just, it's just shaming people. And, you know, there is a, a spot in society for just shunning and shaming people for saying things that are out of bounds, which if that's what you, if that's an argument you want to make, sure. And this, this also goes to the free association argument. If you see something, you hear something, somebody says, and you decide you don't want to associate with them, fine. Don't associate with them. That's all, that's all you. Brilliant. That's not what cancel culture is. Freedom of association does not mean that because somebody says something you don't like, you try to materially harm them. That's, that's not, no, no. You're, you're still associating with that person. First of all, you're associating with that person to the point that you're trying to ruin their life. That's not not associating with someone. You're doing it wrong. Like, oh my God, the amount of people trying to make excuses for cancel culture has just been insane. It's been absurd. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, it's just, I, it makes me mad because a lot of people are purposely misconstruing the point that everybody who has a problem with cancel culture is trying to make. And that is that we want more debate. We want more speech. And I've said this on several occasions in kind of the frame of discussing people being deplatformed, where it is my opinion that if somebody is an asshole, I want them to be an asshole in as big a platform as humanly possible so that everybody can see it and then do their free association and say, you know what? I want nothing to do with that person. I've been advocating that. That's not what cancel culture is. I mean, if you could just do that and then just leave the person alone, cool, fine. I'll be like, okay, I don't like what this person has to say. So I'm not following them on Twitter. Or I'm not watching their YouTube videos or I'm not reading their Facebook posts or whatever. And then just keep it moving. We wouldn't have a problem. The problem is you don't keep it moving. You then take it upon yourself to be like, I have to make this person go away. That's the problem. You don't have the right to do that. Like, I, I don't know how else to explain this. I, I, I thought rational adults could figure this out, but apparently we don't do rational adulting anymore. It's just the, the utter and complete straw manning of that argument. I just, oh my God. Just ask anybody, ask anybody who has ever argued about any of this. Like it's, that's all we wanted was an argument. That's it. That's all we want is a debate. And Y'all can't even manage that. Like, God damn. And then, and then there's, there's the 1A slash free speech argument, which again is another straw man. First of all, this has nothing to do with 1A. I have drawn very bright, shiny lines. Honestly, when I talk about like social media censorship and stuff like that, between 1A and free speech, 1A pertains strictly to Congress. Free speech kind of pertains to everything else. But this isn't even a free speech issue because people are trying to make it out to be like, oh, well, you just don't want these people to say anything at all. Nobody said that. Nobody fucking said that. If you want to be critical of somebody, go for it. You can be critical of somebody. That's not the problem that we have. 
We're not saying that you can't be critical of someone. We're not saying that you can't publicly criticize someone. We're saying, hey, don't dox that person. Or hey, don't get them fired from their job. It's not to say that you can't be like, that person's a dick. Go for it. Say it. But it's just that, that willful misconstruing of what we mean when we say cancel culture. And it's annoying. It's quite frankly annoying because you're diminishing a problem that is starting to happen more and more to regular people who don't have the means to fight back. And that was the whole point of this letter. So, yeah. But to wrap it all up, because I wanted to start with clickbait culture and then move to cancel culture. Because first of all, it's just anybody who says that either one of those two things is gaslighting the fuck out of you. They exist. They both exist. And the point of why I wanted to talk about both of them is that they feed off of each other. In order to have cancel culture, you have to have clickbait culture. If you cancel somebody in the forest and nobody hears it, did you actually cancel them? No, because nobody knows what you did. It requires that sort of clickbait culture. And it's not just in media, it's in social media too, where you do these things for the likes and the retweets and all the attention and all the light and all the heat. And that's how you cancel someone. Like you, you can't just, it can't just be one person. It has to be a whole mob of people. And so you do it for the clout. Like that, that's what it's done for now. Like you do it for the attention. You do it for the likes and the retweets. Just the same way that clickbait culture engages in certain stories because people click on it and it makes them money. It's, it's the same thing. They're two sides of the same coin. They need each other to exist. They feed off of each other. And so that's why, that's why I, I wanted to do this and highlight both of them because without one, you don't have the other. And I don't know how you fix one without fixing the other. Because as long as the incentives exist for people to act the way they do, people will keep acting the way they do. I mean, we're humans. This is, this is what we do. So there's something to think about when you think about trying to fix either the culture in more traditional media or the culture in social media is that the same incentives drive both of those Drive both of those trains down the track and they're not good incentives. They're really shitty incentives. And how you, how you fix that? I'm not sure, but we need to, because this is no way to keep going forward. Like we can't keep doing this to each other. It's not right. It's not fair. It's getting people sucked into stuff that, I mean, they, I mean, I don't even know how like a normal, not extremely online person would feel knowing that there was an online mob out to get them. Like, I, they would probably be confused as hell. It'd be like, what? Wait, who? And where? What? What? But here we are, and this is happening. And don't say it ain't. It clearly is. And everybody who tries to tell you that it isn't real, or that it, it's not that big a deal, is somebody who wants to actively maintain the practice and uphold it so that they can keep using it. And that's it. Like, that's, I don't know what else there is to say about that. 
Other than people are gaslighting the fuck out of you if they say that it ain't real because it's real. So, wanted to cover all that. So, at this point, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. If you did make it this far on this one, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care and until next time.